You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the podcast where we're talking about Bitcoin. Well, back by popular demand, I have Bitcoin thought leaders Parker Lewis and Will Cole from Unchained Capital to talk to us about everything happening in the energy space. Additionally, we talk about how and why the financialization of Bitcoin is so difficult for various platforms to do in a responsible way. We talk about some of Parker's concerns with the energy situation in Europe from a macro standpoint and the environmental FUD that currently exists and much, much more. So without further delay, here's my interview with Parker and Will. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Like I said in the introduction, I'm here with Will and Parker. Guys, welcome to the Investors Podcast. Welcome to Bitcoin Fundamentals on the Investors Podcast. Good to be here, Preston. Hey, so I, the, one of the things that I just see this theme kind of coming up and you see a lot of it maybe being missed with a lot of the proof of stake conversations. And I don't want to like pull that up here into the front of the conversation, but what I do want to talk about here at the beginning is just energy and Bitcoin. And Parker, I know you have talked about this quite a bit in how these two sectors are merging, whether the energy sector realizes it or not. And I think the Bitcoin mining, I think they definitely see where this is kind of the direction some of this is going. But for people that are joining us and maybe not dialed into all this, explain to them from a very top level kind of framework of why these two things are coming together in in a rapid pace. Yeah, absolutely. So since I've been helping to organize the Houston Bitcoin meetup over the past year and a half or so, I've started to pay a lot closer attention, not just to the mining side of Bitcoin and proof of work, but also uh, the energy sector as a whole, but also kind of how it interplays with Bitcoin. And and I've started to, to learn a lot more about energy and power production and drilling and natural gas and oil. And I think that to, to start on the context of Bitcoin, and we can, we can talk about in the context of proof of work and proof of stake, is that I like to simplify Bitcoin down to being of fundamental value to the world because there will only ever be 21 million. And that the killer app or the real fundamental value in Bitcoin is that it affords everyone the opportunity to be able to opt into a form of money that can't be printed. And that there are a lot of people, you know, myself included, who, you know, at least up until the last 18 months, and I'm still on my rapid descent down the, the energy rabbit hole, that took, take energy for granted. And how I relate that to Bitcoin, though, is that everyone took money for granted. And that there's a lot of people that, that think that Bitcoin wastes energy, but people who do not understand why Bitcoin is of fundamental value to the world could never understand or justify the amount of energy necessary to protect it and to secure it. And if all value in Bitcoin derives from the fact that there will only ever be 21 million, you don't get something in va- of value in the world without a cost. And in this case, and, and in Bitcoin's case, that part of the, the core backbone of what secures Bitcoin and what enforces that fixed supply of 21 million is real world energy. There are a number of other intricate puzzle pieces that also secure Bitcoin, uh, but the energy component of it, the the thing that makes it 
very costly to, to forge Bitcoin transactions or to write invalid Bitcoin transactions to, to the Bitcoin open public ledger is energy. And that the consequence of that is that, you know, Bitcoin is money, uh, at least in my view, and, and energy is what secures it. And, and what Bitcoin represents to energy is a fundamentally new source of demand and a new incentive to develop energy resources. And that, that will have profound implications for the energy industry as a whole. Uh, and I think a lot of us always focus on the money side, but, but the world of Bitcoin and energy are rapidly converging to one. And what I've seen in the last 18 months is that, you know, it, it certainly feels like we've crossed over a tipping point where the energy industry as a whole, and it's not just oil and gas, but also the power sector, maybe more importantly, the power sector, is starting to figure out that this thing, Bitcoin, can really not only help solve a problem, but also be a huge source of, of profit for their businesses. So happy to go into to, to more detail there, but, but, I, but I really do think that, that Bitcoin will help transform energy as much as it transforms uh, money, albeit I am still someone who is, you know, I, I don't consider myself an energy expert. No, I know just enough to be dangerous. Will? No, I mean, uh, I, I agree with Parker. I got into this not from the mining and energy side, but after attending the Houston meetups in particular, which, um, you know, since the Chinese ban on, on mining, uh, as it were, a lot of that, uh, a lot of those companies and a lot of that hash powers, you know, flocked to Texas. And this has become kind of a central point for those discussions. No, I mean, you know, everything of value. I mean, gold has the same issue, right? You know, gold's price determines how much energy is expended. To extract more from the ground, when it goes up, we can expend more energy. We can get more gold. Bitcoin has other, you know, safety measures in place where you can't get more Bitcoin. But at the same time, understanding that nothing of value comes without expending energy, and that when I think of proof of stake, as you mentioned at the very beginning, you know, it, it much more resembles like sort of you know shareholder voting agreements or, or governance in in, um, in like a public stock or something like that. I don't think that's where value comes from. And in order for Bitcoin to have value, proof of work is essential for it. Parker, yeah. One one thing I was just going to add there, you know, kind of leveraging off of Will's point, is that one other way that I think about proof of work and, and Bitcoin mining is that really, and, and this kind of comes back to a fundamental point around money, which is, and again, this this is my perspective, but I also believe it to be a, a fundamental economic truth, is that um, we all truthfully only need one form of money. There, it's not coincidence that most of us have only ever interacted and traded with one form of money, that money converges in a consensus forms because it's actually necessary to converge in order to solve a problem of trade. And that's functionally what money does. And that via Bitcoin's proof of work, along with a number of other puzzle pieces, it actually solved this problem. And, and, and when I talk about solving a problem, it is being able to issue and validate currency and for everyone be, being able to credibly rely on the fact that there will only ever be 21 million or more importantly, that there will only be a fixed amount of money without the need for trust. The credibility of that is important and without the need for trust of that is important. And proof of work was critical to that equation. And, and if money converges to one, then, and Bitcoin already solved the problem, then any other arguments around proof of stake of whether it works or doesn't work, it can only work as well as Bitcoin already does. And, and more importantly, and this is to Will's point, the, the proof of stake system, 
part of that proof of work function separated ownership from validation and security of the network, um, such that everyone within the Bitcoin network has equal rights. The consensus rules are the consensus rules and nobody can change them. And what effectively a proof of stake system does, much like JP Morgan, Chase, and Wells Fargo and Bank of America, it combines validation with ownership. And um, what we've seen historically is that that has really bad outcomes. And we actually solve this problem via Bitcoin and proof of work. And we would basically just be uninventing the wheel or, or going back to, to a screwed up world. And so the proof of work function is, is not only very necessary, but it, but it functionally obsoletes the need for any other form of money in the context of Bitcoin, which therefore obsoletes you know, the need to try to, to even think about proof of stake because the best it can do is match Bitcoin, being able to credibly enforce a fixed supply without the need for trust. Can't do that. But part of the reason why I can't do that is because Bitcoin and proof of work already solved the problem. So you were getting into a little bit of, in proof of stake, how it has this JP Morgan-like fiat-based incentive structure built into it. There was recently a video that came out this week where a person was talking about the Ethereum merge and all of the concerns that they had around regulatory capture. And what they were getting at is by people staking their coins in order to do the validation of the new supposed uh, protocol that's going to be rolled out with Ethereum, that there's regulatory capture happening at the exchange level because people are incentivized to just take their coins, put them on put them on the exchange, and then all of a sudden the government can come in there and tell the exchange what it is they are or aren't going to do with all those coins that are being staked into into the exchange's hands. And so talk to us about your thoughts on how you see this progressing through time. I I laid out a little bit of of the person who made this video and hopefully we'll have it in the show notes here uh, so people can check it out to see his thoughts, but what are your thoughts on, do you agree with him? Do you see it maybe even being worse than that, better than that? What, what are your thoughts? I mean, I'll start. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I see, I see some of that, uh, the regulatory capture side of it, it, you know, it, it, you're starting to combine different layers of counterparty risk, right? You, you already, already had certain amount of risk of having your coins on the exchange to begin with. And now layer on top of it that you're trying to get you know certain rewards from staking from that and that you're putting a target on pretty much anyone who wants to have a say in the protocol's development uh, you're putting a target on their back um, making it very easy for you know governments and um, uh, to to influence decisions on the protocol level but also I mean uh, is this is this not true I could be I, I could be wrong here so I don't I don't want to you know, say any uh, untruths, but uh, I think it's also true, at least at the beginning, very similar to like the beacon chain that you can uh, stake on right now, is that you can't withdraw. Like once you make that decision to stake, you're you're essentially locked up, and that's an indeterminate amount of time. And there's even more risk uh, other than just uh, regulatory or typical exchange counterparty risk there, which is the same risk of what happened to Celsius. Right? Which is crazy. Um, which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate to interrupt you. But that's nuts. Yeah, it's just risk later on top of risk later on top of risk. The sort of regulatory capture risk, I mean, it doesn't even have to be a government having malicious ideas of how to control the protocol, but if you're on an exchange, you're already you're already subjecting yourself to jurisdictional risk of where that exchange is located. If they're in New York and they decide that, you know, proof of work rules and proof of stake is terrible or vice versa, you're again risk layered on top of risk layered on top of risk. So yeah, I mean, I haven't read that or seen that video yet, but uh, I would tend to agree that 
the incentive to keep things in on an exchange in general, uh, in addition to the risks that already exist, uh, is going to be bad for the protocol overall. Yeah, it's 100% a centralizing force, but I always try to come back to the fundamental, which is Bitcoin already obsoleted all other forms of money. Everyone else is just catching up. And that if we are going to you know, kind of talk about it, is it, like the most important part of this whole thing is that in order to affect it, it requires a hard fork. And you know, other protocols do this all, all the time. But when I talked about you know, the, the fundamental value in Bitcoin deriving from the fact that there will only ever be 21 million and that, 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 that happens credibly and without the need for trust, well, that is dependent on decentralization. And proof of work functionally just continues to further and further decentralize the Bitcoin network. It's not the only layer at which Bitcoin decentralizes over time. But the mere fact of, quote, changing a protocol, the, that, that that's even possible, demonstrates in front of everyone's face that thing is so centralized that you could change the rules. And that defeats the entire purpose, because if one rule can change, then any rule can change. And this obviously isn't the first time this happens with other protocols on a quarterly basis. It's pretty comical, I think, to the people in, in the Bitcoin world who are paying attention. But just like with a lot of things, there's a lot of noise in the world and people have to figure out by touching the hot stove. And hopefully podcasts like these help people kind of uh, learn without having to deposit their Bitcoin in a Celsius or, you know, God forbid, hold their form of money in something other than Bitcoin. And then uh, even worse, potentially... Uh, have it be in an, an, an even worse position than just being on the exchange, but, uh, but, but it's staked on an exchange. So Parker, you had mentioned earlier that you uh, were doing this Bitcoin meetup down in Houston. I would imagine you have some major players out of the energy sector participating in these, in these meetings. Is, is that the case? And uh, is there anything that you've heard or seen just on that front that has kind of surprised you or that you think is noteworthy? Yeah, I, th I think that there's certainly people from the majors who come through. I mean, it's, a, it's an open meetup. We, we, we don't check uh, IDs and, and, uh, and also we, we do value privacy. But um, it, it's really interesting because if, if anybody's ever been to Austin BitDevs, and for those that aren't familiar, we host the Austin Bitcoin Developers Meetup uh, at the Bitcoin Commons downtown in Austin. And if you walk in that room, it's a, it's a group of developers that are working. You know, There's a mix of people, but uh, it's a very tech-centric group that's, that's working on protocol development or application development that uh, is impacted by protocol development. When you walk in the Houston meetup, it is an entirely different complexion. It is an energy-first group of people. And it, you know, it's, it's not just oil and gas drillers and landmen. It's power producers. And I think that what I've seen, and there's you know, kind of a combination, but there are people who come through the meetup um, that work at the majors. There's, there's private oil and gas, there's large power producers, there's power brokers. And you know, they kind of have different cross-sections where some end up focusing on on-grid. And those might be you know, power producers that are kind of a key part of the supply chain to building substations or uh, manufacturing transformers or um, procuring power or producing power. But then there are also oil and gas guys that, that are focused more off-grid of how Bitcoin mining can, can solve the problem there. So my, I'd say my greatest takeaway, you know, kind of zooming out, is that the energy industry, I wouldn't maybe say as a whole, but that we've, we've passed over 
a critical point, a, a tipping point where enough people have figured it out that there's real signal here that it's only going to accelerate, that enough people have looked at this and said, you know what, there's something real here and it can solve a problem. And once you cr cross over a critical mass, there's no going back. And, and, and that what we're witnessing right now is, is an acceleration uh, in terms of the convergence between the energy sector and Bitcoin. Do you think we're there right now? We've already passed over that. Yeah, I think we've passed over the critical mass. And Will, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, uh, in Texas, it's obvious, but you know, right now I'm sitting in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and you know, I've been having these discussions here for I don't know since 2014 or so. And um, the big, the big holdup here, you know, off grid has become uh, very popular here amongst you know, not not even you know, oil and gas people, just landowners. But the utilities were always the you know more difficult you know side of the equation in Wyoming, and we've seen a lot of uh, deals being made just in the past year, uh, new capacity that will come online over the next you know six eight months in in the state here because you know after seven years of of trying to wrap their heads around this, there is sort of a tipping point that's been reached, and you know honestly Texas has sort of set the standard. There's jealousy involved. There's a uh, you know, if they can do it, we can do it. Um, obviously, Texas has a lot of advantages given, you know, the nature of their independent grid um, and the size of that grid already being what over, I think it's 70, 77 gigawatts or so uh, of capacity. So, you know, places like North Dakota and Wyoming are going to have to catch up. But off grid, you know, it's very, very exciting here amongst the oil and gas people, landowners, and then even on grid, uh, you, you see it happening. Uh, th there's hardly a discussion that happens uh, or a meetup uh, in the state where there isn't some contingency from the energy sector present and participating. Yeah, one thing too, um, like I didn't want to like over oversell it in terms of there's still a lot of people that from the energy sector that don't understand Bitcoin, and I'm not suggesting that there's 50% of people now. You know the other fifty percent are going to be dragged along, but I'm talking about enough of a contingent that looks at this and says there is something real here, and being able to see month after month the the type of crowds and the type of people, and that they are energy first people, right? They are they are oil and gas operators. They are energy like energy professionals across the industry, where it's not they weren't Bitcoin miners and then started to learn about oil and gas and power production. And that one of the things that I've witnessed is that uh, a number of people got into Bitcoin to solve a problem, whether it was they, they had drilled a well and um, they had natural gas that was stranded and it wouldn't have been economical to, to build a pipeline and Bitcoin solved the problem for them. Another kind of story that, that one producer out in West Texas told at the, not the last meetup, but the meetup before was that a permit got pulled because I think it was, I can't quote the number, but, but, but on an order of magnitude, it was like a 20,000 MCF pipeline and got a permit pulled because they were flaring like 400 MCF a day and went to the railroad commissioner and said, if I show up with Bitcoin miners and capture this flare, am I, can I get my permit? Yes. Um, <laughs> and then in other instances, you know, I think people in the, in, in the power sector started selling Bitcoin or so, started selling infrastructure or helping procure power and working on PPAs for, for Bitcoin miners, just recognizing that there was a signal that they could, they, that there was end demand and that it was worth investing their time and energy in. And now they're backfilling on the Bitcoin knowledge side. And we're at that point where enough of them have, have started to, to find the true signal that I think this is true in all cases when peers hear things from themselves rather than, you know, 
Bitcoin enthusiast telling them about how Bitcoin is the best form of money, but it's more Bitcoin can solve a problem and they can actually see it and hear it from their peers. Uh, that, that's the point where we're at, where there are a sufficient number of those that, that nobody gets, I won't say nobody, but, but it's a lot harder to laugh people out of the room. And, and once we get to that point, a lot of entrepreneurs and innovators, which is core to the energy industry, not just in Texas, but in America, that when they get turned on to something, that, that it's off to the races. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. You know, uh, this past week, I saw something about BlackRock coming out and basically saying that they found Bitcoin to be in alignment with their ESG initiatives and that it wasn't... Uh, bad for the environment. And to be quite honest with you, 
I was kind of blown away and I thought it was a really big deal. And not because I, I put this importance on BlackRock necessarily. I mean, they've got trillions. It's more because of all the companies out there that are cramming ESG down the throat of every company board on the planet, it's them. And I guess I was just kind of surprised to see this out of them because I would have expected the exact opposite. Were you guys surprised by this? Is this is is this a bigger deal or is this a nothing burger? What are your thoughts? I mean, when you put it that way, if you're at the top of the food chain of a you know as a confidence trickster around like a scheme like ESG, you kind of get to set the terms, right? And so. Am I glad? Like, yeah, it makes things a little bit easier, right? I don't yeah. know if it's genuine or if it's just because all of their clients are begging them to get into Bitcoin and use the vehicles that they have in order to do it. In order to do that, they had to come up with their own narrative. I happen to think that they're right, right? I'm not sure if they think that if they would agree with me on the reasons that they're right. I won't complain, but no, I mean, like, it's a, I see it as kind of like an unholy alliance, but, you know, one that works in our favor for now. <laughs> I agree with that. I totally agree with with that. <laughs> Go ahead, Parker. I, I would just say like whole ESG thing is a fraud. They're all scammers. Tell us why. Right? Tell us why. Go go into details. Because BlackRock, they care about making money and charging investment management fees. And um, I think that the whole premise to think that the people that you know incepted this and then pushed the rules, you know, like they don't actually care. And it's all about control. And, and, I, and I think that the more that you pay attention to this, that, that it's obvious. And so like in this case, I'd say beware of the you know, wolf in sheep's clothing, which is they recognize an opportunity to make money. They back solve the rules and then they'll do things to, you know, just like they've done to the oil and gas industry, they neuter it, right? They, they figure out how they can, they can make money off it. But then they virtue signal or do whatever they want to do to, to control the behavior that, that they want. And they do that via the money system, right? And so I think that, that I, would be, I would be very cautious around this of celebrating it because I think, you know, I, I would say ESG is a fraud and therefore Bitcoin's not ESG. Um, that, that Bitcoin will, will do all of the things that all of the people who espouse to have principles around ESG just because of the incentive structures around hard money, and that um, that we should celebrate the energy producers, particularly natural gas, particularly oil. Uh, it is our lifeblood, and uh, and if they could, if BlackRock could basically make the entire energy industry bend their knees, that um, just because they see a profit opportunity, don't think that they're going to to not try to influence things just the way that they have and in ways that have been incredibly harmful for, for our energy stability and security. So um, I think, you know, when, when you get down to the brass tacks, we should, we should not be celebrating BlackRock's, you know, kind of working with Coinbase to, to enter into Bitcoin. I mean, it's fine, right? Like I don't, I'm not worried about it at the same time. I just wouldn't be out there being a champion for, for BlackRock because uh, the incentive structures are broken, and they they don't actually give about you know anything other than their investment management fees and exerting control. Like they exert control through the financial system. Here in the state of Texas, it was either the 
I think it was the lieutenant governor sent a letter to the comptroller basically saying that, you know, Larry Fink, I believe who's the CEO of BlackRock, came out and said that, you know, they're supporting a net zero policy. And um, the the Texas lieutenant governor basically instructed the comptroller to pull all funds. I don't think it actually happened, but to pull all funds from BlackRock, BlackRock managed funds because a net zero policy was destructive to the Texas energy industry. And the, the Texas state house had passed a law that public funds could not be invested with anyone that um, from a financial perspective that, that worked in opposition to an industry that is an important and strategic to Texas. And that in this case, I'm almost positive was BlackRock. So um, yeah, I, I would, I'd follow the incentives and, and, and just watch for the next move. If, you know, someone like Marathon now they reverse course, but if they started getting into ESG mining and and we start labeling what is and isn't okay in terms of what energy can be consumed to secure the Bitcoin network, that's a really bad path. And BlackRock has a really bad track record. Love that. Shake, shake, shake down artists will find a way to shake you down eventually. So. <laughs> I like that, Will. That's so true. You know, I, I just like the way Jeff Booth frames a lot of this, where he says, if the money isn't scarce... Everything that's desirable on the planet will become scarce. And when I just look at you're you're seeing this narrative run around on on Twitter quite a bit, where we've got a quote unquote energy crisis. And I think for people that are looking at it without any type of understanding of financial markets or what's kind of playing out with fiat currency, I would rephrase or recage that as we have a fiat crisis where banks and BlackRock being one of the major you know, players in all of this that are pulling strings are flooding the planet with fiat currency. And as a result, the things that truly are valued, and I think you're seeing the barometer in energy first and foremost, especially over in Europe, those charts are I got I got a chart I'm going to pull up a little bit later some of the electricity costs and things like that. I mean it's like Weimar hyperinflation looking charts. And I think that's the barometer. That's how you're actually seeing the crisis which is a fiat currency crisis. And the desirable thing that everybody wants is energy because it's at the core of of everything. So Sorry to go on there. I'm just kind of piggybacking and and agreeing with everything you guys just said. I think it's important for people to have their guard up, but I did find that that quite interesting this week (laughs) with their announcement. Uh, What do you guys think about paper Bitcoin? Caitlin Long talks about this quite a bit and just concerns of the financing of Bitcoin and turning it into paper Bitcoin and people owning that and losing touch with reality of, of what it is they even own and whether there's a way for regulatory capture, similar to like what we were talking about with proof of stake and Ethereum, does Bitcoin have a concern if, from your vantage point in this area? Is this something that the community's got to be careful with? I don't. Uh, I know that this has been a long-term concern of every gold bug. You know, I've known since you know 2006 or so. They've always explained it to me, and I'm sure there's you know monkey business that goes on. You know, um, you know with the paper gold and the paper Bitcoin. At the same time, uh, like zoom out enough, and I don't really worry about it. Uh, I, I think it's kind of a loser's argument at the end of the day. Um, is that first of all, you have no control over you know how those things you know turn out and what 
what regulations get passed and you know, whether there's going to be futures markets and whether there's going to be ETFs and whether there's going to be all these things and how they end up getting regulated is that I don't think it ultimately matters for Bitcoin long term. I admit that there are probably schemes in order to try to depress the price over a short term uh, that, that, that could be deployed. But in Bitcoin's case, um, again, I see it as kind of a loser's argument because you know, what else are you going to do? Uh, there's being concerned about it doesn't matter. Build things that are valuable. Bitcoin has a core value proposition that exists with or without you know these paper Bitcoin markets that most of the people that play in that world are going to get rug pulled anyway because Bitcoin's a bare instrument. And just like the gold people have learned, you know, there's no substitute to actually holding Bitcoin. Yeah, and I think the other thing I would just add there is that uh, while very few people in the in the U.S. financial system can take physical delivery of gold or do. You can take physical delivery of Bitcoin, and that you know, if if you borrow borrow Bitcoin, and presumably the only reason to borrow Bitcoin today is to short it or to sell it, that if you are borrowing Bitcoin and shorting it, you can only do. It's not say someone can't buy that Bitcoin and lend it out again, but in that individual operation, you can only short it once. And what you do is you create demand on the other side. If you're short Bitcoin, then you need to purchase it back. And using the perfect example. So I think as Will stated it, it was perfectly correct, which is you could potentially manipulate the price over the short term. Uh, you can't over the long term. The, the perfect example of that is Celsius. Celsius, people deposit their Bitcoin to Celsius and Celsius lent that out. And now Celsius doesn't have the Bitcoin. Bitcoin eliminates moral hazard. When Bitcoin are lent and they are lost, there are no bailouts. And those Bitcoin that Celsius lent out that were sold, they're in somebody else's hand. They're in someone else's cold storage. And the market cannot ultimately be manipulated over the long term because Bitcoin's supply cannot be manipulated. The supply of paper gold can be manipulated, but you can't functionally take that paper gold and say, give me the physical gold. Um, that it's mostly hedge funds that have no interest in owning the physical. Uh, and in Bitcoin's case, if Bitcoin gets onto an exchange and then is withdrawn, it's withdrawn and it's secured by private keys. And there will only ever be 21 million. There's currently 19 million of issuance. All 19 million of those Bitcoin are controlled by keys. And if Bitcoin was sold to you and you withdrew it to your own keys, that those short-term financialization manipulation games that can happen cannot be sustained because the Bitcoin is all accounted for by someone, right? And, and that when you live in a world where you can take delivery at virtually no cost and secure it at very low cost, you're incentivized to do that. And then when the tide goes out, those who are swimming na naked uh, are revealed. In this case, it was you know Celsius, other platforms, Three Arrows, BlockFi's got issues. So I, I really don't worry about it. And also kind of coming from a world of, of having shorted stock you know, again, you can only short stock once. You know, yeah. you can short more of it, but then you got to buy it back on the other side. So every time you create a liability, it, it's creating artificial demand on the other side. So as much as you might suppress it, you're going to send it the other way on, uh, uh, you know, on the back end. So I, I really do believe this is noise. I mean, I understand why why people have concerns over it, but when you get into the fundamentals of actually understanding the flow of funds and the ability to influence price i, I really it, it is a it's a non uh, it's a non-issue in my i world. agree with you guys yeah go ahead will i was just gonna say I, I have concerns but they're for the people that buy paper bitcoin not for yeah. the marketplace of paper bitcoin yeah and if it yeah, is double if it is double lent out that your borrowing costs just keep going up and up right which is only making that realization 
uh, point of realization to uh, the timeline to slide, slide further and further to the left. I'll just say this. If you're buying Bitcoin futures and not a uh, physical Bitcoin taking delivery, you're, you're, you're uh, playing the wrong game. <laughs> so true. So true. And, and I think for people, especially in the gold community, you mentioned this, Will, that feel like they've been burned in this area. I would just challenge a person, if you've never taken physical custody of Bitcoin and you either have or haven't taken physical custody of gold, mm -hmm. start your stopwatch and do it and then secure it after you, after you eventually receive it. One's going to come a lot faster than the other. Then secure it and uh, look at the deltas between those two approaches. And then I think people will understand why I think the physical market isn't nearly the concern that you have in the physical, in the, the physical gold market. But I mean, it's one of the primary things that Bitcoin outcompetes gold on, right? And make sure when you're doing that transaction that your counterparty's in France. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You guys are with Unchained and Unchained takes a lot of pride in helping people hold on to their own keys and help people secure their Bitcoin in, in any kind of way. Do you guys have anything brewing, any new products, anything that you think will help people take ownership so we don't have more paper Bitcoin? What, what are you guys up to these days? Well, you know, I mean, I think just like at the core of it, and it's, and it's part and parcel with this discussion, which is what we ultimately do and what the foundation of our, our platform is helping people hold their own keys. And so when we think about what's happened in the markets over the last three months, Bitcoin, I hate using the term crypto more, more broadly, but that like the, all these discussions that we've been having about kind of um, the state of the markets, the, the consequences of what's happening in the broader markets, um, ultimately in Bitcoin comes down to the ability to how you secure it. And that uh, the, the, the key differentiator in Bitcoin um, and the key differentiator kind of in terms of the currency itself and how you can hold it, but also the network is that it's permissionless. It's permissionless, it's, it's decentralized, anybody can access it and anybody can transmit Bitcoin to anyone in the world. And that the most, I'd say, core thing, at least to me about that is the ability to hold Bitcoin with your own private keys. Because it doesn't matter what anybody else in the world is doing. If you can control your private keys, then, then you have the ability, um, whether, you know, truthfully, whether you have a node or not, you can spin up a node and, and that becomes your permissionless access to the network. But if you have your own keys, you're controlling your wealth. And you can take that wherever you want and, and go where, wherever you want to in the world. And so really, that's at the core of what we do. And that's you know, kind of our, our underlying mission, and we continue to build that out. Bitblock Boom is next week, uh, or I guess by probably by the time that this gets released, we'll be in Bitblock Boom week, and we we are um, planning to to make an announcement there. But it's really just an extension of of what our core mission is, which is helping more and more people hold their own private keys. But we're kind of going to expand what kind of had initially been a, a private launch around the trading side. Will, I don't know if you want to talk about that, but but really, kind of we focus on. The you know kind of private key ownership expanding that base solving a lot of these problems that people have come to to face in these last few months around losing their Bitcoin or giving it to a to somebody they shouldn't have and we're just trying to to kind of further that mission by being able to to help more people hold their own keys and and also being able to buy directly there. Well, if you want to kind of go into more, Will details. can you spill the beans on something? 
Yeah. So without bearing the lead, yeah, okay. the idea is, uh, you know, buy Bitcoin directly to cold storage with keys that you control uh, with an added value proposition of um, affecting final settlement faster than any place else in the world. Right. So if you have an unchained vault that you are sovereign over the keys uh, and over the funds, uh, we can affect final settlement Bitcoin in your hands faster than anyone. Like in the, the next, motivation, like in the next block, it's it's straight into your vault or or what? Well, it depends. Uh, uh, so we we take uh, we take USD through wires to speed things up, you know, because that's the fastest uh, fiat um, settlement. So if you've pre-funded like a large amount or something like that, then then typically within the next hour or two, we can we can um, affect final settlement. Typically, for most people, it'd be like T plus one. Once the wire clears, then we then we uh, set off an operation to to settle the the the, the Bitcoin to to your vault. And of course, that's that's the entire thing that we're going to be working on over the next you know year. You know, the idea being, you know, as we get MTLs around the United States, uh, you can prefund those vaults. You can, um, uh, therefore, like the USD settlement side has already taken place. And therefore, when you execute a trade, you know, if we're signing, you know, multiple times a day, you'll get same day settlement that way. Uh, you compare that, you know, even to an exchange. Even if you've prefunded, you're subject to withdrawal limits. Uh, you know, oftentimes unless you have some sweetheart deal. So if you've let things build up or you're doing a large purchase, it can take, you know, quite a while. If you're, you know, DCAing on a on a platform like Square, which I love, uh, I've used, but uh, Bitcoin then triples in price and you have uh, weekly withdrawal limits, it could take you weeks to get to get your Bitcoin off. This is sort of like um in my own personal story, something that I've wanted well, I didn't know to want it in 2011, but I knew to I knew to know to want it by you know 2013 or so, and we never really had uh, the ability to cut out you know part of that counterparty risk, which is just the time it takes uh, from purchasing uh, Bitcoin to taking full sovereign control over it. And so right now, you know, most of those transactions are settling around T plus one, but regardless of the size of the purchase, but you know we'll be working to get that into the same day uh, over time. I think that you know again from my personal story it's not just you know time of settlement is a really big deal because there's so many different you know we talked about earlier the layer on on top of layer on top of layer counterparty risk you take when you're with an exchange or any other way to buy bitcoin is just that um it's not just you know withdrawal limits it's not just um you know exchange hack risk it could be jurisdictional you know i've had friends that um you know here in wyoming that bought bitcoin you know before 2017 and between 2016 and 2018 it was stuck not because you know coinbase was hacked not because um you know they were doing anything nefarious but because they read the money transmitter license rules in wyoming and decided they couldn't do business there anymore which included allowing you to withdraw funds. And so people's funds mm. in Wyoming were locked up for two years. And because Wyoming's so small, most people have never heard of that. And then we changed the law in 2018, and then people got their money back, right? But if you think about what's going on in New York with proof of work and like, what could they do? You, you just have so many different risks that you know, we say, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. And at Unchained, we've been facilitating people you know, taking custody of their coins. But when we look at that, we say, every one of those coins was bought somewhere or mined somewhere, right? Everyone took a certain amount of risk getting it from wherever, whatever situation they were in before to where they ended up with and unchained. And wouldn't it be great if, you know, we could, how do we cut that down to the, you know, the bare minimum risk that someone could take when transferring dollars in order to get Bitcoin? And um, so, yeah, that's, uh, 
you know, what we'll be launching will be in 26 states uh, at the time of launch for, you know, working to get all 50. Uh, but it's pretty exciting. It's something that I personally wanted for a long time and hoping that other people, you know, see the value. It's awesome. It's awesome. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. 
Let's shift gears into some macro talk. Parker, I asked you before we started chatting if there was any charts or anything that you wanted to kind of look at. You had told me that you think one of the most important charts out there is just the global central bank balance sheets. Uh, so I'm, uh, for people that are listening, describe why you think this is important. I'm going to throw it up on the screen for people that are joining us via uh, YouTube. But talk to us about this chart. Are you going to pull it up so I can see it, or you just want yeah, me to? Yeah, I'm memory? trying. I'm trying to. I'm having a little technical difficulty. I mean, I know. <laughs> I know what it looks like, like the back of my hand. So, are you pulling up the um, the Fed balance? Is the Fed balance sheet? Yeah, the Fed reserves. Yeah, the Fed balance sheet. Yeah, I think that um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the Fed increasing interest rates um, and out of control inflation, and I think in the last meeting, the Fed increased interest rates 75 basis points. But um, what really matters is the dollar supply. And all dollars uh, are created and destroyed by the Federal Reserve. And the size of the Fed's balance sheet is really what, what dictates uh, dollar interest rates more so than, than short-term interest rates. Essentially, uh, that when the Fed increases short-term interest rates, they do and can potentially seriously screw up um, some short-term funding markets. But the dollar supply is really what what influences everything. So the, the Fed's balance sheet, so goes the Fed's balance sheet, uh, goes goes the world. Every other balance sheet that's that's dollar-based or really just fiat-based is levered to the Fed's. And that, you know, this is so interrelated to Bitcoin because I think oftentimes people intuitively come to understand why it is um, so uh, so destructive to have your money be printed, but it's really on either side of that equation. It's it's the process of creating money and eliminating money from the system um, on either side of that equation is destructive to the, the economic structure. That, that manipulating the money supply is really the fundamental problem. And what the Fed has signaled is that they're going to start to unwind the balance sheet. But despite the fact that they've been raising short-term interest rates, they they haven't really moved the needle at all. If you if you look at the chart, um, it, it's a flat line effectively. It's it's down, I think, like $30 billion, but they printed $5 trillion in the last two years. Um, it's a rounding error. And so that truthfully is the whole reason why Bitcoin exists. And that when we that when we look forward into what might come in the broader financial markets uh, and the potential disruption, it is the Fed's balance sheet that really uh, is is the greatest influencer, and the Fed signaled that they're going to start to unwind the five trillion. The truth is, they won't be able to. Um, but when it comes back to the energy discussion, too, it is that the Fed increasing interest rates um, is going to do nothing to create more energy. Um, it's only going to uh, further impair those supply chains. And so, you know, like I think, you know, it's just whenever the Fed comes out and says anything that they're planning to do, it just reinforces why we do what we do in Bitcoin, not just what we do is unchained, but I think what all Bitcoiners do in, ter in terms of helping to, to spread the knowledge base. But I do think the Fed's balance sheet more so than what the Fed is doing in terms of raising short-term interest rates is really the more important um, financial, the more influential kind of driver of everything that happens in the market. And the, and the, and the relevant thing today is they, they really haven't done much, uh, but that they've signaled that they, that they will. And, and I don't believe that they're going to be able to uh, drain a lot of dollars out without um, breaking the system, but that what what they choose to do from an actual balance sheet side is more consequential than anything. So I have to tell you guys, this is the first uh, 
interview I've done with a new computer. And uh, as I was trying to share it here with Zoom, Zoom gave me a message that I had to stop recording and re like reload the software in order to share the charts. So no charts for anybody <laughs> until we're done with this interview and then show notes, show notes, show yeah. notes. There I'll, you go. I'll, I'll just, I'll just describe it. So in 2007, the feds balance sheet was about a trillion dollars and then they increased it by 3.6 over three series. So imagine three humps and then they took out 700 billion and then they printed 5 trillion. Uh, and now they're, you know, uh, they've, they've been flat for like, you know, six months and they've signaled that they're going to reduce it. But, uh, fool me once, uh, shame on you. Fool me four times. Shame on me. Exactly. You had, you'd made the comment that, uh, as they're tightening, you think it's going to break supply chains and, uh, you know, potentially even lead to further inflationary prints. I think this is in the realm of possible here. And I think that that's a very contrarian take to people that are heavily involved in financial markets for years and decades. They would say, we're on the cusp of a recession and we're probably going to see a lot of the interest rates reverse course that we might even see deflation here in the next six months. Talk, walk us through your narrative, Parker, because it seems like you don't share that, that belief. Yeah, I, I think that um, it's just a very common sense perspective, which is um, essentially the Fed is trying to destroy demand to bring prices down. Yes. Uh, right. Um, but when you destroy demand, you can also destroy supply chains. And if you destroy supply chains and uh, producers' ability to produce, then um, you can end up in a much worse situation. So um, the demand for energy over time has proven to be very inelastic. Um, we need gasoline to, to, to get in a car, go anywhere to produce and deliver goods to market. And that, you know, just, just hearing things interacting with more people in the energy industry, just kind of give a few anecdotes, but, but I hear it consistently is talking about how, um, and, and this is kind of also part of the, the function of ESG, but, but it'll, I think also has a, a big impact now is that there's been a large underinvestment in CapEx across the board in the oil and gas space. And that a lot of the drilling is necessary to just sustain current demand. But when you have a very tight and constrained market where I, I went up to the uh, Minneapolis Bitcoin meetup a few weeks ago and flying back, I sat next to a, a guy who'd been working on well sites for the past 42, day, 42 days. And he was talking about how they, they were at max capacity. They, couldn't, they, they were starting to reduce the, the quality of people that they were hiring. They couldn't keep people. They were paying people. They started to hire people straight out of high school, um, paying them seventy five thousand as a straight out of high school job, and they couldn't keep people on on staff. Um, and that basically the the industry is at a maximum capacity, and such that if you start to make the costs of capital more expensive, or if you start to massively reduce the um, you know, reserves in the emergency reserves and, and start to artificially bring energy oil prices down specifically, uh, you impair the ability, you, you do two things. You impair the ability of producers to capture that price 
Um, but then when you start to raise interest rates, you start to increase the cost of capital such that if people wanted to go finance more production activity, it now costs them more. What are you, what's going to happen in that environment where the producers are capturing less price, they can't hire people, uh, you are actually going to get less of the goods and services to market than you actually need. And the things that are most inelastic are oil and gas, uh, and then the more refined products down market. And so, uh, but it all comes back from a very common sense perspective that uh, you you do not get more of these things by by essentially cutting off the capital uh, or making the the capital significantly more expensive uh, to to finance these activities. And you know, it's one of the problems of the fiat system as a whole, which is cheap debt is what you know, has financed infrastructure, including in oil and gas. And so if you make that more expensive, you're, you're just going to impair the ability to, pr- to produce more of it. And, uh, and so I think that, you know, kind of that, that's what we'll see. People will actually need uh, as much natural resources and as much gasoline, as much, you know, power as they've ever have, um, but less and less of it will be, you know, coming to market or, or not enough to meet the, the demand. So I don't, it's like the the symptoms and the problems of money printing are vast, and I think that we're going to find it out in a bigger way uh, through this cycle. Will, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I won't uh, you know pretend to be able to hang with you and Parker when it comes to macro, but uh, I'll just say that uh, you know what Parker just said on top of you know supply chains that are already strained by shutting down an economy for two years, and you think that raising interest rates are you know going to uh, Going to help the situation seems again from a common sense perspective. I, I I look at all the other you know macro commentators, especially in the Bitcoin space. I listen to Parker and you and Lynn and others. Um, and uh, and then if I watch any mainstream news, I I just it, it doesn't doesn't make any sense to me. Um, so which is which means you totally understand everything that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe that's the first step to understanding. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And and I just think that, you know, it's like anytime the Fed comes out and does anything, you know, it's just like there's a very loud signal being sent that something's wrong. Right. Oh, yeah. And uh, big time. And people, you know, um, energy prices are up through the the roof. Even the United States, like if you look at, you know, natural gas prices, they're, um, I think it was like Henry Hubb, I believe it was like $2 in MCF. And I might get my units wrong, but. It was like two dollars three years ago, and now it's nine dollars today, right? Um, what does that translate into? That translates into higher electricity prices, and it's aren't it's just starting to to ripple through, right? Not well, today, Zoom. I got my phone out and I pulled up the chart yeah. off of my desktop. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but I mean, just look it, at that whopper. It's insane. It looks like a hyperinflation chart. Looks like a startup. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, and so. Um, I think everyone feels it in their daily lives. Uh, I don't think that many people uh, connect it to the issues with our money system. What's that one? This is natural gas in the UK, and and my screen is like refer. I'm, I've got all sorts of technical oh. issues tonight. <laughs> but uh, well, pull up got, natural gas. Pull pull up Henry Hub natural oh, my gas. Can't, my lights getting in the way. I mean, just look at that. It's totally. I can see. I can see a reflection of myself in your phone. <laughs> <laughs> what a disaster! Hey, it's this a pro operation. Oh yeah, we're just, we're just trying to make things this, happen. This is a total boomer move. I know that <laughs> Preston is not a boomer, but like. We're we're uh, descending down the path of, of in being Bitcoin. Our I kind of am in in Bitcoin. I classify myself as a boomer, I guess. 
<laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, even if you look at the at the U.S. prices too, and I think that again, most people do not make this connection to the fact that that our money's broken, um, and you know, it's kind of like it, it. It can be really difficult to kind of operate in an environment, um, not from an investment perspective. Although I'm sure everyone who's investing is chasing their tails as well. But when you know, it's it just. Every single day, the more that happens, the the more convicted and the more uh, you know important Bitcoin kind of as a as a project really you know it's like I think we probably all feel that way, but more people figure it out, um, and so it's like I I see the um, kind of chaos that the Fed and centralized institutions all over the world create, um, and that people have to start keying into it, but. Also, people do as a function of the market test that that what we're here for of building Bitcoin and helping deliver infrastructure that provides provides a more sound uh, monetary system is the most important that anybody could be working on, and that includes you in terms of just Amen. you know kind of helping to ex- uh, expand the knowledge base around it. Um, so, completely agree with you. It is this is vital. I mean, when you just think about what it offers, which is settlement between any two parties, it doesn't matter who you are, who you know, to be able to transmit value instantly uh, anywhere in the world, regardless of jurisdiction, and to physically take custody, to me, without there being any debasement, the terminal debasement is just indescribable. I don't know how people can't think that there that there's something just unbelievably massive here. But what uh, what 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 percentage of your audience do you think holds their own keys? Hmm. I I bet you it's less than we would like to think. But I don't I don't know. I have no idea. And the only reason I say that is because so much of our audience came from traditional finance yeah. and have have come into it and I think for some of them, they're just like, hey, I buy into the idea that this that maybe the money's broken and maybe I need to have a hedge against that particular event happening. And so they're probably just looking for something to have exposure to the upside, the asymmetric upside, and they just want to be able to do it in, in the easiest way possible. Uh, so we, we need to scare them off of paper Bitcoin as well. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying with the show and and, uh, yeah. and talking about why I personally, I, I mean, that's not how I operate. I mean, mm-hmm. um, everything that you say, Parker and Will, like I'm, I'm with you 100%. Like, I think this is a way bigger deal. You know what, Parker, your, your take on this potentially continuing to blow out with respect to energy, I think is a way higher probability and I'm not saying I completely agree with it, but I think it's a way higher probability than what what most, because I think if you took uh, most people, anybody on Wall Street, anybody who's a professional like hedge fund manager or whatever, they're saying we're going to have deep deflationary forces here in six months to a year, like deep. And I think in some areas, some some products and some types of services, I think that it, that may be true. But I think for energy specifically, look at Europe, like it's. It's saying the exact opposite. Um, there looks to be, there looks like there's no end in sight for where that's going. Um, you've seen a little bit of a drop in oil recently, but you're not outside of like, like it continuing to to rip 
And uh, I just think that it's an important consideration. And I think it's something people need to think about because I think it's in the realm of possible. I don't know if I would say it's my high, my base case, but I think it's in the realm of possible. I mean, I, I think when you start to understand, um, and again, I don't pretend to be an expert, but, but if you start to talk to energy professionals yeah. of people actually in the field that that understand the supply chains it will it, it is a consistent we've underinvested massively and we are at max capacity and that when you understand the the disruptive impact of tightening financial conditions um you create we already have a supply constraint issue and and that only becomes worse right and so or at least that's my perspective and there was a, a recent podcast that uh, Griffin Haby on a Marty Benz podcast that I encourage people to listen to where he specifically talked about, and he's a, he, he comes, he's a Bitcoin miner today, Griffin is, but he came from the oil and gas background where he basically said, we don't really know what the price of oil is today because they, uh, they are depleting the emergency reserves in, in massive proportion. That's basically flooding the system yeah, yeah. with, with oil that's not produced today at current cost right and then when you start to understand that producers are struggling to find the labor to expand capacity that's that's the core fundamental driver and anything that the the fed is doing to potentially quote destroy demand or increasing financing costs doesn't make the supply issue go in the right direction um and so i do think and i and i talk because when i go around and you know, educate about Bitcoin, the more I get involved in the kind of in the energy community or, or develop friendships and relationships in the energy world, uh, I've started to think about this a lot more, but, but oftentimes they'll ask me, you know, because they oftentimes they'll, they'll find their way to Bitcoin because it actually solves a problem for them before they actually understand the, the money, the hard money dynamics of it. All, they'll often ask me whether or not like Bitcoin is savings or it's money or an investment. And I, I say, uh it is the right way to think about it in my view is that it's a better form of money it might not operate like a better form of money or, or might not be perceived to that because of its volatility and different characteristics that don't line up well with what people have known money to be but there is a reality that most people have taken money for granted and don't actually understand why the dollar is of value but that it is inevitable that people think about bitcoin the first time that they buy it or definitely if they're buying paper, Bitcoin, don't do that bad idea. Just buy the real thing. Um, that it's impossible not to think about it as an investment initially, that that, that is unavoidable. And that the, the more that you go down the rabbit hole, listening to these shows, reading the Bitcoin standard, other resources on Bitcoin, when you get to the fundamental of it, you will start to see it as money, but that can't happen um, without going down that rabbit hole. And it certainly can't happen the first time that, that you buy Bitcoin. And you know, a lot of people, I think, and you probably see this a lot in your world, Preston, where people talk about how Bitcoin's a hedge to inflation. And now they don't understand why, hey, if Bitcoin's a hedge to inflation, why did it come down? And there's this whole like massive credit bubble and the dollar was deleveraging and everything's levered to the dollar. So it's perfectly reasonable there. But Bitcoin is not a hedge to inflation. It is the solution to inflation, the permanent solution that, that it is a, a inflation is a function of money creation. And when, when money is free, uh, or freer than free, is, uh, as the people on CNBC famously once said, 
that this is what you get. You get economic distortion, economic disruption, economic imbalance. And the only way to restore that balance is by finding a better form of money. And that is what Bitcoin is. And that's why I just, my construct of it is like, when we think about uh, inflation, it's not just the function of, of people printing money. It is that the supply chains and the economic distortion actually create supply and demand imbalances. Just that the goods that we actually need cannot be delivered to market. And you actually need a reliable form of money to coordinate all the inputs. Uh, and that's why just, you know, my view is it's Bitcoin is actually the solution to inflation, not a hedge to it. Amen. I just don't know how people can think anything other than that on a, on a long time frame, right? How can't you think that if you add more units into the system that the prices, and it's not linear. And I think this is Michael Saylor's big point where inflation is a vector of, of all these different things, depending on where you're taking the measurement at. But if you're continuing to add units into the system collectively on a global scale, like how can't people think that that's, that's what causes inflation? I, mean, I just think it's really straight, straight and very obvious to your strategic. Well, they, they've been telling us for you know, eight months that that doesn't cause inflation. And, uh, and then they came around to it. Uh, the, the Fed just learned this uh, in their you know, century plus uh, uh, you know, existence that have just figured out that, yes, that is what actually causes inflation. To uh, Parker's strategic petroleum reserve uh, comment, just to kind of give people a heads up. So I'm looking at the chart for, uh, back in 2020, uh, there were 656 million barrels in the strategic petroleum reserve. Today, we're at 464. So I think you could say about a third of it has been depleted just in the last two years and, uh, and still aggressively being depleted to offset prices. And so think, far, it's- but th- but think about what that does too, because this is this is something very fundamental. It's kind of like uh, it's the other side of printing money. They're printing oil right now, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, because that those oil that were in the strategic reserves, uh, they weren't produced today. They weren't produced at current cost, so they're flooding the market, right? And they're manipulating the price of oil down. Well, the actual price response, if you're working in a in a stable form of money regime, which we're not, um, the supply response, namely the price of oil going higher is what incentivizes producers to be able to go produce more to capture those prices such that when you're depleting the emergency reserves, you're, you're basically hitting the producers on both sides. You're, you're raising interest rates, increasing financing costs, and you're artificially reducing price, which you otherwise could be capturing to go form new capital in the form of rigs and wells and new production. And so now the Fed's not releasing the the, the reserves, but these two things are incredibly destructive to new capital formation, which would translate into uh, an increase in supply to alleviate price. So it's just, it's like they're they're chasing their tails, and, and we all will be chasing our tails uh, until we can 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 do away with the entire you know kind of uh, scheme and scheme <laughs> legacy structure centralization, right? Because this is also as a function of, of the the perils of centralization at many different layers. So yeah, it's, it's a um, well, it's incredibly unpredictable too, right? Because that's a political 
decision that's being made to deplete the reserves is as if they're just you know hard forking hard forking rules and you never know what you're going to get going back to our proof of stake conversation when you make that a possibility you make it incredibly unstable you know and incredibly you know difficult area to operate in guys i can yeah, talk you Go ahead. i was gonna say what, what do you think that oil producers would produce if the barrel of oil cost five dollars versus three right and it's yeah. like, what's the only thing that's caused the or not the only thing but what's a big thing that's caused those those prices to come down the u.s government selling oil and it, it is functionally competing with the oil and gas industry and it's incentivizing so they, more consumption because people have a price that they can afford it at three and not at five so you're yeah. incentivizing further consumption which is you know like you're just warping the incentive structure incentive structure of free and open markets period right and yeah. and, and look we should all want cheap energy right uh, and so it's not like we're i'm not you know saying like oh well i wish the i wish oil still cost you know 120 dollars a barrel and the gasoline still cost five dollars um versus coming down it's it's that energy abundance is the key to reducing energy prices and i think the point that you brought up about jeff boo's comment is like the scarcity of money is actually what creates the abundance of all other goods including energy Amen. um because because money is is the input required to coordinate all of the the energy inputs to actually extract it and so uh, when you manipulate things you ultimately get far worse outcomes in the end rather than just letting the free market work Guys, I could talk to you all night. This was brilliant. Uh, can you give people a handoff to anything that you guys want to highlight, your Twitter feeds, any of that stuff, and we'll throw it into the show notes. You want to go first, Will? Sure. Um, I'm at Will Cole on Twitter. Uh, you can visit us at unchained.com uh, if you're looking to you know, find a way to not be subject to withdrawal limits or get your funds locked up for an excessive amount of time. Look forward to our announcement on Saturday the 27th around our uh, new trading tool that is being released in a little bit over half the United States uh, next week. Yeah. And uh, I'm at Parker A. Lewis uh, on Twitter. I run a lot of meetups and uh, we help people hold their own private keys. So people can check out our website, unchained.com. And yeah, look out for, for our announcement uh, during BitBlockBoom. And if you want to hold your own keys, uh, come to unchained.com. You can schedule a consultation, but uh, that's what our mission is to help more and more people do that and to, to help uh, people uh, get off Coinbase and, and avoid the exchange altogether. And the more that people do that, the less they'll have to worry about paper Bitcoin. Love it. Guys, thank you so much for your time. This was a blast. Thanks, Preston. Thanks, Preston. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.